the desire to want to see the love of Christ be extended and have a witness that way. That we would pray that we would have a strong witness amongst others in our community and with each other. And that strong witness is what we're going to see today as we continue in our study of Revelation. Still in the beginning chapters, but these messages to the churches in this grand vision that John had of the victorious Lord, the victorious Savior. Jesus coming to him in a way that we don't normally think with the eyes of fire and the two-edged sword that will be mentioned here in just a minute. Um, glorious vision, fearful vision. And Jesus yet says, don't be afraid. I have work for you to do, John. And he gives him these messages to then distribute to these churches that John was so familiar with. John would have, um, would have known and probably ministered in all of these churches at some point in his ministry and his base there in Ephesus. But Jesus knows these churches even much more intimately than John ever could. And so these messages and these churches are representations. You know, we, we, we may be distanced by, what, thousands of years between ours and, and these churches back then, but folks, people are all the same. We have the same struggles even as believers. And as the struggles and Jesus gives condemnation, but also gives com commendation and condemnation, these are things that we struggle with today, too. And so we need to pay attention and say, what part of this applies to our church and what do we need to be aware of? See, John, Jesus has been revealed to John, the victorious Savior, right? He holds authority over the churches, and he knows the condition of each local congregation. And so his message now to this third church, this church in Pergamum, is commendation mixed with condemnation, both. This church is doing something wonderful. It is holding fast to a witness in a very difficult setting. But they're still on the, on the wrong side of it. They are allowing sin, tolerating sin that will ultimately weaken it. Really, we're going to see what we all tend to struggle with. That is, we tend to lack uh, an effort or desire for complete spiritual analysis. In other words, we tend to think of ourselves sometimes better than we are. For those that are faithful servants, to look at all the things that we're doing and kind of just overlook some of the weaknesses in our lives. It's our tendency by God's grace, we can focus on both. But Jesus points that out today, that all of our service and ministry is important to him. And therefore, if we're weak in any area, we must repent and turn and change that. And so this church is described as holding fast while tolerating evil. How can that be? We're going to see. It's going to be a warning to us, for us as well, for a faithful witness Make sure as well that we're not tolerating evil. We'll read this passage 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, 
You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, prepare our hearts for this message. These messages that our Savior gave to these churches are those that are still relevant to us today. Help us to see that relevance, to look and as we continue in each of these messages to measure Village Chapel Baptist Church, where our strengths and weaknesses are. Father, let us be honest with our weaknesses and be willing to repent so that we don't have this warning come upon us. We want to be pleasing in all of our ministry to Christ. We can only do that through his power, and so we ask for that today, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Holding fast while tolerating evil. Jesus commends and he condemns. But first of all, he commends commitment to himself. He commends our commitment to himself. And he points out that in the midst of all the persecution and the struggle that we face, his words will bring power and victory when we listen to them and embrace them. Well, first of all, verse 12, to the angel of the church, that's the leader, the pastor of the church in Pergamum, who would then relay that message to his congregation, and he gives the message there. Well, let's talk about what is what is the city of Pergamum? What, what, what's the basis? What's the background behind that? Well, Pergamum, it could also be, uh, it could be described as or called Pergamus. And it actually meant parchment. And interestingly enough, it was the location where parchment was first manufactured, where, in essence, a type of paper was discovered. So because of that, probably not surprisingly, it eventually ended up holding one of the largest libraries in the known world, and it eventually grew to over 200,000 volumes. Now, we appreciate our libraries here. My boys love our library. Uh, it's right behind our house, which is very, very convenient. And we, we access that a lot, especially on long trips. But I think 200,000 volumes would overwhelm them or be overwhelming to, to any of us. And yet, back then, this was a big deal. And so Pergamum, Pergamus, was well known for this. And it was prominent in world history, even 300 years before the birth of Christ. It was the prominent city in Asia. So eventually, the Romans made it the official capital of the entire province of Asia. Now, all of these cities that we've talked about have had their distinguishing characteristics and are significant in one aspect or another. And certainly that is the case with Pergamum as well. That's some of the highlights. Unfortunately, folks, the reason why the Romans made it the official capital is because they approved of its idol worship. It was a city 
entirely devoted, say, um, satiated with idol worship, including four different temples to four prominent false deities. And this city was the first of all these cities to have a temple devoted to emperor worship. We've talked about this before in the other churches, Smyrna, additionally. And it's interesting, in this um, evaluation of Christ, we see both of the difficulties that were mentioned of the previous churches. This church is struggling with false teaching and persecution, both. And a lot going on. So they were so dedicated to emperor worship, which was worship, offering sacrifices and incense to Caesar, to the emperor. They became so well at it that later an additional temple was made. And this became literally the most intense emperor worship city of the Roman Empire. You remember in Smyrna how we said once a year that the Christians in particular faced persecution if they would not offer incense to the emperor. Folks, in Pergamum, every day, Christians faced that type of persecution, a threat to their very lives, just for living in the city and proclaiming Christ in danger, never knowing on a daily basis if they would face the ultimate persecution and give up their own lives. And one is described in that very soon. Folks, to this city, Jesus needs to remind them and gives them a very specific message to encourage them, and that is this. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the powerful, victorious sword of Jesus' words. He is the one. Jesus is the one with all the power. It is interesting, another thing about Pergamum, because of this emperor worship, it had been actually given by the Roman Empire the honor of the right of the sword, the ability to carry out capital punishment as they saw fit. And many times that was the persecution of believers. This is a hard thing to go through, a great struggle for believers. And folks, they needed to hear this, that as they faced the sword on a regular basis, maybe had to give their own lives, that there would one day, the persecutors of these believers would one day face the all-powerful judge with the two-edged sword, who truly had the cosmic right of the sword to pronounce judgment on them for their deeds and would defeat them with his very words. These Christians needed that message to remember who they served. Jesus Christ, who has the power to judge the right of the sword, would one day come and make everything. What a glorious way to start this message and a reminder to these folks. At the same time, it's also a reminder to them that he is their judge too. And they need to be careful. But first of all, his commendation here. His name is worthy of our full commitment. And these people understand that. And because of all of these aspects of idolatry and persecution within this great city that I just described, Jesus has a very significant name for this verse 13. He says, I know. That's an intimate knowledge. He says, I know everything about you. I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. Describing this, these believers as having a home in the very same city that Satan had a home in. That's intimidating, right? 
They dwelled in the same place. But the fact that he says Satan's throne is in this city does indicate that Satan had some sort of power and authority, albeit temporarily, in this particular city. It's interesting, in fact, that at least two of the gods worshipped in the city were portrayed with images of serpents. Satan, it was in a visual way, it was clear that the darkness of Satan reigned at least temporarily, in a city filled to the rim with paganism, idolatry, all with the power of the sword to enforce its demands. What a difficult place to live. And yet amazingly, here is Jesus' testimony of these folks. Yet you hold fast my name. and You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed? among you, where Satan dwells. And this church amazingly was able, through the power of Christ, to stay true to the name of Jesus, remain faithful in the midst of this intense persecution, this intense evil, paganism, idolatry worship, and even in the midst, as one of their own, literally had to give his own life for being committed to the witness of the name of Christ. Remember, the name of Jesus refers to his very nature, his character, and his works. And this Antipas and all of these folks were giving faithful testimony to Jesus Christ in the very dwelling place of Satan. That takes courage. That takes guts. And yet God had given these people that courage. And it cost Antipas his life. And he was still willing to do that. And these people, even though they saw that, I'm sure they loved this man. Faithful servant, witness alongside of them, they said, we will, we will continue to proclaim Christ, even at the cost of our very lives. Before we go any further, let's all acknowledge that sacrificial committed witness to our risen Lord is no small thing. And it's no small thing to Jesus Christ. He knows. He knows everything about us, but he recognizes and is pleased and will comfort those who are willing, no matter what they face, to give continued faithful witness to his name. And let's be honest about this as well. The scriptures make clear in many passages, it is a necessary element, is it not, of all true believers, that we will endure some sort of suffering. To proclaim the very word as it described, the word, the sword that comes out of his mouth, Jesus' words, the word made flesh. When we proclaim him and are faithful to him, maybe not the type of suffering we're describing here is what we're facing in our lives, but we'll face something. And folks, as, as this country and this nation and our society becomes more and more antagonistic to Christianity, this may be around the corner. We don't know. But this prepares us for whatever we would face by reminding us that the all-powerful Savior with the sword will come and make all things right. And in God's time, Jesus made clear he will judge the persecutors and he will set all things right. And these folks knew that. And they depended on that. And their faith was gloriously strong in Christ. Praise the Lord. We rejoice in that. 
Now, in the midst of all that, wouldn't we just say, praise the Lord for this church. Hallelujah, brothers, keep it up. But Jesus knows all things. And there's also some problems that this church does need to address, or Jesus is actually going to come and deal with them, amazingly enough. And he warns here in the second part, verses 14 through 17, he warns of the church's toleration, of our toleration of evil, disobedience. And he is against the allowance of disobedience in his church to his commands. These believers' faithfulness was certainly highly commendable, but on the downside, they were tolerating evil within the very body of Christ, and they were causing believers to stumble in their Christians, Christian lives. And Jesus describes it interestingly in this way. But I have a few things against you. And by the way, that's no small thing. You don't want Jesus to say that of you. Because that means that if you don't change, he is against your actions. And there's correction coming. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam? Well, isn't he the guy that the donkey talked to? What does that have to do with the church in Pergamum? But this is Jesus, right? And so we need to understand, not just look at this and say, what's going on? But Jesus is telling us this, we need to dig further to have understanding, and thankfully, in the Old Testament, we have that. We're given that. Jesus is using this story of what Balaam had done to God's people to say there are people doing this today in the same way. Not Balaam himself, but the same teaching, the same stumbling block that Balaam put before God's people you are allowing people today in this church in Pergamum to have that same stumbling block before believers. Numbers 22 through 24 tells a story of Balaam, the local prophet for hire, who Balak, the king of Moab, if you'll remember, as the people were traveling through the land, the king of Moab didn't like that, and he wanted something done about it. So Balaam was the local guy to go to who was known that speak the words of the Lord, but Balak didn't fully understand that. He just wanted Balaam to curse Israel as they made their way to the promised land. Now, we don't have time. That's four whole chapters or three whole chapters of Old Testament story. You go back and read that sometime. And I appreciate Peter reading what he did and giving the explanation. But if you'll remember, Balaam told Balak, that he could only speak the words of God, but he did. He made it clear he was interested in the money, and he wanted a way to have that money. Obviously, the king of Moab had some great resources, was offering him quite a bit of money. He wanted the money, but he had to make it clear, I can only speak the words of the Lord. Sorry. In his mind. But... I may not be able to help you in the way that you want me to. And that was certainly the case. As he spoke, he actually tried. I think Balaam was hoping that maybe he could get a curse out of God's people. Foolish thought, but this man was overwhelmed by desire for money. I think as a side note, it reminds us that our desire for money and our passion for something other than Jesus Christ can make us very foolish and need to, as it did. You think God had a, um, a sign or a message for Balaam and having his donkey speak to him 
to show him how foolish he was being. And yet Balaam could only speak blessings instead of curses upon God's people. And it says in the end that Balaam and Balak went their way. And then in chapter 25, something very interesting happens. It, it, what we find is that the Moabites discovered another way to be a stumbling block to God's people. Go ahead, you know, go ahead and turn to Numbers 25, because we're going to look at Numbers 31 too. Just a few verses. Numbers 25, 1 through 5. Right after Balaam and Balak parted, we have this story. While Israel lived in Shechem, the people began to war with the daughters of Moab. And what happened here, the Moabites somehow figured out that they could tempt the men of Israel through immorality with their young women. And that's what we see here. And the men of Israel became captured and immersed in immorality and also idol worship. And God had to deal with them severely. Let's read. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. They invited them to idol worship. The people were tempted and the people ate and bowed down to their gods because they now had this attachment because of these young women that the Moabites sent to the men of Israel, causing them to stray from faithfulness to God. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill of those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. The king of Moab did find a way to be a stumbling block and cause disaster to come upon Israel as he tempted them to disobey. Now, ultimately, that was Israel's fault. It was their responsibility. But the king of Moab was crafting and figuring out a way to do that. He caused the people to stumble with the stumbling block of idolatry and immorality. But it's still a little bit of a mystery. And it's not until no, Numbers 31, turn to Numbers 31, 14 through 16, that the mystery is revealed. Where did Moab, where did Balaam get this idea? And what happened to Balaam? Well, after the sin is dealt with, God calls his people to go up against these people, and there is a great slaughter. God gives um, the people victory over their enemies, and it is told in Numbers 31 that among the slain is Balaam. What's Balaam doing with God's enemies? Well, Moses tells us what Balaam's doing with God's enemies in verse 14 of 31. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Here we find that Balaam got this great idea. Maybe he came back to Balak and said, I have an idea. Okay, I have to speak God's word. Really want your money, though. And I know a way you can tempt the people of God to stray from their God and cause great destruction. A major plague came and killed many of these people because of their disobedience. 
Balaam may have been a prophet of God in a sense where he had to give God's word, but he was also, we see here, the enemy of God. Isn't it remarkable that somebody that speaks the very words, even as Peter read those words this morning, all truth about the power of God. And did you notice, by the way, it was a prophecy of the one who would come. Balaam gave a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet that same person was the enemy of God. Folks, remember that. Even as we um, highlight certain people and and give certain people importance in our lives that we think because of merely their speech, they're wonderful Christians. Be careful. Make sure you know the person. Make sure you know their character before you, you trust them to, to lead you. Anyway, that's all just a side note here. What we find out, though, is Balaam was the greater perpetrator than even King Balaam. He was the one most responsible and actually devising stumbling blocks of temptation for God's People. Well, how does that connect then to what Jesus is saying, to the teaching that is being allowed in the Pergamum church? And what Jesus is saying is that same teaching, that idolatry and immorality connected with false worship is actually being tolerated within the body. Remarkable that a group of people that are commended for holding fast to Jesus' name would actually be allowing teachings of idolatry and immorality in their midst. How could that be? Well, we're all a mix of strengths and weaknesses. I think personally, and maybe we can, we can understand this, that these people were fighting so hard and having such a difficult time. And you know this, when you are giving your all for God, you're fighting. There are certain other things in your life that you will go ahead and give allowances for because you know what? I just I, I just need a little bit of relaxation or I just need a little bit of downtime or you know, I just we, we can't be strong on all these things. And some of these things, you know, they're okay. It's not gonna be that big of a deal if we allow those things into our lives because we're fighting a good fight. We're doing what's right, but we just get weary, and sometimes when we get weary, we let our defenses down and we allow things into our lives or possibly into our church that should never be allowed. Sometimes leaders, they're fighting the battle, and they're dealing with all kinds of disciplinary situations, and they just get tired. And they allow other things to go on within the church that shouldn't be allowed. And yet, folks, that can happen, but also don't miss the grace that Jesus has here. He doesn't come with the sword and just decimate or provide correction for this church. He gives them warning. And I find great comfort in that. That if something, that as a leader, that something has escaped my attention, or I there's a hidden sin, as David says, a secret sin that I become blind to, that Jesus isn't just going to come up with his sword, but he's going to make it clear. He's going to give me opportunity to repent. He's going to do that here in a minute. But that wasn't, that would be bad enough, right? That they would be allowing that. But also, verse 15, you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've heard of them before. What did I tell you about those teachings? You remember those teachings? Probably not, because we don't really know what they were. But whatever they were, they were a false teaching that was an offense to Christ. And we do have some, a little bit of indication that this teaching may have been 
um, that allowed God's people license for um, adultery, immorality, excuse me, and idolatry, that would fit well here. The church is giving allowance for evil. And Jesus says, I have that against you. That needs to change. Here's his sobering warning. Well, before we do that, let me just give a little bit of application here on this. You know, there's many secondary applications that I could make about being careful about immoral and idolatrous strands within church function and practice that would taint its purity. And those would be important emphasis to make. <coughs> but I think the direct application here is a warning not to allow blatant disobedience to God's commands in his word. Can that really happen in church? I'm aware of stories. You've heard of these in the past, and we grieve over these things. Where faithful churches find out, even among the leadership, of immorality going on within the leadership, and it's just kind of winked at. You know, don't make too much of it a kind of big deal. We, we almost marvel that that could take place. But, folks, I know that it does. I've heard stories. You probably know situations, too, where Pete, and I think it, sometimes it is that people look at their ministry and it's doing great things for God. And so the leadership's like, well, we can just kind of slip in these areas and nobody will find out about it. And we'll just keep it between ourselves. And Jesus says, no, I'm against that. No immorality. It's direct disobedience to my command, and I'm against that practice in my church. Um, there's others, even with idolatry. You know, a pastor or leadership can serve God faithfully and let, and yet make it clear that they have great passions that sometimes, if they're not careful, they can make clear they have a greater passion for something of worldly origin than of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a sports team. It's no. It's not wrong to be loyal to a sports team or to love to enjoy sports. But if we talk about, this is just one practical aspect of this. If you talk, if we talk about sports all the time to the point where when people think of us, they think sports team rather than servant of Christ, isn't that idolatry? If as a pastor, I'm constantly, and I, this isn't my weakness, but if I did this, I don't think I hardly ever use sports stories just because that's not, I don't have a lot of those ready in my mind. But if, if I were to be one that would use a lot of sports illustrations and things about a specific team and people left thinking about my funny story about a particular sports team or whatever more than the message, wouldn't I in some way be, um, be proclaiming a leniency toward idolatry in some way or another? You see, direct disobedience to God's commands can happen in a faithful church. I could give many more illustrations, right? Anything that would come across as idolatry or something that even a particular leader that allows himself to be adored and people talk more about that church leader and that pastor than they ever do about Jesus Christ, it's idolatry, too. And my point is that those types of things need to be mentioned, need to be um, noted and eradicated. 
and that we, the church, needs to maintain firm obedience to all of God's commands. Our society is continuing to get more and more degenerate. We are facing opposition to basic demands of God. Folks, do you think that the church is going to um, face persecution soon for just pointing out the basics that God created men and women different? Is that? It is. Abortion. <clears throat> that, that, that very basic command that Jesus, that, that God says about the, the a right to life and the um, the importance of life, and yet to even be supportive of uh, groups and those that try to fight against abortion in our land is becoming almost a crime, and we're being painted that way. It is going to be harder and harder for God's people to maintain loyalty to even the basic commands of Scripture. Yet Jesus says, you can do it. Don't tolerate it. Don't give in. Don't get lazy. He says then he's not going to tolerate. He will deal with this disobedience in those who tolerate it. Verse 16 makes that clear. He calls for them to be careful and to repent. Therefore, repent. Turn from your way. I've made it clear. I've pointed out your fault. You turn from that now. Don't wait. Because if you wait, I will not wait any longer. And if you wait, if you will not turn, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I find this interesting. I have to be careful of the context and make sure we interpret this correctly. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He'll come to the church, but he'll be against them. What's going on there? Jesus is saying, I will deal with those false teachers that are teaching disobedience to my commands in your church. I will come to you and deal with them. I think what he's saying here is, if you tolerate or if you're aligned with them, you may be caught in the crossfire. And in context, Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to come back one day in the second coming and deal with this. But he's, this is more immediate. I will come to you soon and deal with them. And really, as I studied this out, there's a number of interpretations, but I really believe that this is most accurate, is that those leaders and those people that tolerate or tie themselves to those false teachings, Jesus says, I might have to deal with you in the same way. Let me give you an example. Doesn't Paul refer to the fact that those believers, true believers, who refuse to turn and do right in specific areas that God has noted in their lives and they refuse to change. Paul makes it clear that God has an option for those people that's not pretty. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have even died. I really believe that Jesus is saying here, if you will not repent, then my usefulness for you may be done. And I may take you home to be with me as I deal with the sin in your midst. That's a sobering warning, folks. We're, we're, we rejoice that the sword will defend us. We don't want the two-edged sword against us in any way. We won't win. 
some of you know that uh, my voice, two of my boys, well, Kendall and Luke, uh, one of the basically the main thing they're focused for Christmas, they wanted BB guns. I visited a friend in Georgia and they'd recently gotten their son a BB gun and he was showing them how to shoot it carefully and, and different things. And they just, from that moment on, became obsessed. And so we thought about it and we thought, you know, I've got the right time. We got some advice from some of you all. I think, I think they're ready for this. Um, so they got their, their BB guns and we had that. We weren't even able to put those things under the tree until the very day because it was so obvious what they would be, right? We wanted a little bit of mystery. Are they going to get it or not? And as soon as I put those under the tree that morning, Christmas morning, and we got back from church and they saw those there, they knew right away what they were. And they were excited about that. Well, um, while we were at Leslie's parents, um, I found some time to take in the patch of woods that's behind my father-in-law's house, um, to let Luke and uh, Kendall do some target practice. We put a target up that we bought for them and he was being careful and he was sizing up his scope and all these things being very careful because he wanted to hit that target and we already talked about you don't know, point the gun over here there's a house behind you but be careful here well, we are all careful and we had he had a sight aligned for that one target but there's a dog that my in-laws have his name is her name is dixie she's a lovable old gray dog she loves people and as Luke was just about ready to shoot off one of those pellets, she came bounding through the trees and right toward him, right in the line of the scope. And I said, whoa, hold on, wait. And we waited, and I'm like, get over here, get over here. I mean, I, I, this whole huge yard, and she had to be right in front of where he was shooting because she wanted to get to us more quickly. Well, she had put herself in danger of something that could have hurt her very significantly. And she was fine, and we got her out of the way, and we enjoyed that. Well, folks, Jesus is warning us, don't put yourself in danger, because I will deal with you. And here's his warning. Get out of the way. Don't support this. Don't tolerate this. Christians must always keep in mind that they persist in known sin. The Holy Spirit warns us consistently of that God can remove them from this earth. And Jesus is serious about the purity of his church, folks. He will act to protect it. I can guarantee you that, and he does here. In contrast to that, he has a wonderful, marvelous message for all of those who will remain faithful and committed. And this, again, is to all the churches, number 17. He who has an ear, let him hear. And that really means... You should all have ears that are hearing, that are listening, that are paying attention. Pay attention. What the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, isn't that exciting? If you are faithful to the end, you get hidden manna and a white stone. Amen. Amen. And I'm glad, I'm glad uh, Rob said that. But as you think about that, you might still be wondering, well, I'm sure that's going to be really good. What is that? Do we get to taste some of the manna that God had created for the children of Israel? Well, I, I suppose, I suppose it's a possibility. I don't really think that's what Jesus is getting at. But he is describing a reward for faithful churches. And whatever this means, folks, we can trust Jesus that it is going 
to be pleasurable, that it is going to be enjoyable. But I have a few ideas about what this to help us out here. What is the hidden manna? Well, the manna of the Old Testament that God gave to give to his people for nourishment was eventually put into the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant went to. Some uh, some traditions say that Jeremiah, right before the, um, the Babylonians came, as, as they were destroying the city, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and buried it and hid it somewhere we need to tradition. Is it possible that it might show up again at Jesus' return? We might share some of that manna? I suppose some scholars think that's the case. But really, folks, who? what was the picture of the manna supposed to be? Who was supposed to be the fulfillment of the manna, that picture? It wasn't just sustenance for God's people, but it was a picture of the bread of life that was to come. I'm convinced of that that there would be a greater, deeper spiritual nourishment, not just physical that God gave his people, but a deeper spiritual nourishment that one would come and call himself the bread of life and would give us satisfaction for all eternity. And I'm convinced that's the best description here, is that Jesus is saying, you be faithful. Not that we don't have the experience of the true bread of life already in his work in our lives. Don't misunderstand me. But we don't see him face to face yet. We'd all admit that. And when we see him face to face, that will be the full experience of communion with the bread of life. And we will all, as his followers, enjoy that. And I think that's the picture there of the hidden manna. Well, what about this white stone? Well, let me tell you, there's all kinds of interpretations about this, what this white stone could be. And I'm not going to go through them all today because we're already past our time here. I think the best is that this is describing a ticket to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's unique, right? Well, the background behind this is that in this culture, in the Roman world, stones were used, white Pure, clean stones were used as invitations to entertainment events and banquets in the Roman world. In fact, when people would go to the athletic games, something along the lines of the Olympics, and the victors that would win those different uh, races and events, they would be given, awarded a white stone that would allow them access to a special feast. So when Jesus talks about this white stone, people knew what he meant. This would be an invitation to a very special banquet, feast, and event, and we're going to find out later. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those who remain faithful will feast with the hidden manna, the bread of life forever. But we'll have that opportunity as well at that special marriage supper of the Lamb to have an invitation and have a part of that. But he's not done yet. And remember, there's also a new name written on that stone. Jesus describes here a special name that he has for each of us. Do you know that Jesus has a special name for each of you? Now, you may like your name. I will admit to you, I really like my name a lot. <laughs> um, and it's not that if I meet somebody else named Rock that I'm, um, that I'm not cordial to them or I'm ornery toward them. But it is a little weird because I don't normally hear Brock a lot. I like that name. I should thank my mom one day for naming me that. 
But I have to remember, and if you like your name too, that that's not the name most likely you're going to have for all eternity. Jesus has a name for you, and that's what he's going to give you. By the way, it's not going to be something derogatory. Well done, as we mentioned earlier, that good and faithful servant for all of those that endure and persevere. And that will be a part of this banquet. We will appreciate that name. But you know another thing, you don't miss this, that Jesus is saying here. It's important. He has the authority to name us. Those that are our masters have the authority to give us new names. That was understood in this world among bondservants. Jesus is our master, and he can name us whatever he wants. And we'll, we'll be appreciative of that. Don't misunderstand me. But it signifies his lordship over us that he has the right to name us. And a new name that we'll have forever. Well, as we conclude here, we've seen the church certainly functions in the domain of the enemy today, too. Sometimes, folks, don't we feel like as we hear the news that we, we hate to say it, but the United States is where Satan dwells. And we could say that in countries all over the world, but we sense that. The church functions in the midst of the domain of the enemy, and because of that, we're going to face persecution in one form or another as a result. Will we hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ? We must hold fast to his name and Give faithful witness to him. But that's not enough. We also have to be vigilant in our church bodies, and in individual church bodies in the local church, to not give way to the temptation to tolerate evil. Jesus is going to provide eternal victory for those who persevere faithfully. He promises that. That's that two-edged sword, but that sword will also deal with those who refuse to refuse, excuse me, to allow disobedience or to the sword will deal with those who allow disobedience to flourish within his church. We must always be vigilant to keep our purity. And remember then, as we persevere, that we will receive a new name that we will have a part in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will enjoy the presence of Christ forever. Folks, it's true. We live in a dark, broken world now. But one day Jesus will return, and we will enjoy spiritual riches for all eternity. On the two, keep the perspective. And let that joy of that eternity of relationship with Christ in his presence Motivate us to be faithful and to be pure in this time that God's called us to serve him, and he can enable us to do that. Father, what a blessing this message is, as well a warning. And we pray specifically for this church in this region that you would help us to hold fast regardless of what we face, regardless of what we face, challenges, the surprises in this new year that we would continue to be a great witness for our Savior in this community. But help us also to be aware if we are tolerating specific disobedience to your commands, that you would make that clear to us. Thank you that you do give us the grace to acknowledge, to show us those things. Show us, Lord, if there is that here. 
and give us opportunity to turn. Help us to turn and be pure as a church in this community that we may not have to face your discipline because we refuse to do what you've called us to do. Keep us pure. Keep us faithful. And may Jesus return soon. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.